Well, good morning. Boy, <laughs> good morning. <laughs> I'm sorry to wake you up like that. Uh, before I begin here today, I wanted to make a few comments related to the decision of the Supreme Court this past week, versus, you know, with Roe versus Wade, and realize that this is really a top. Uh, tough subject, and um, you know what happened, the change that took place this week, I know that many of us have been praying for this issue and are celebrating. At the same time, I'm aware of many people that are incredibly angry by this decision, and they're wondering where our country is headed. And all of this just speaks to me about the fact that as a country, we are still deeply divided. On this and other issues as well, there will be other ones that are going to be coming up. And the question is just how do we respond to these things? And I want to suggest one main course of action, and that is love well. Love well. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 14, we read, Therefore God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, Humility, gentleness, and patience, above all, put on love, the perfect bond of unity. I think these are, this is what's required. As Christians, we live differently than those who don't know Christ. We put on heartfelt compassion, you know, regardless of where someone is and whatever they're facing. We have compassion. We have kindness. We need to have a certain level of humility. Oftentimes, it's just a lot of pride with these kinds of things. Gentleness. You know, patience. I just want to encourage us as we think of the different ones with whom we interact in various situations related to this issue, that we just ask the question, what would it mean to love this person well? The one who's faced this thing, to love that person well. The one that makes this decision, to love this person well. Because I think if we do that, I think we'll be doing what we should be doing. Let's jump into our subject, though, this morning. One evening, um, many years ago when I was a student at Bible College living in downtown Chicago, I needed to take a bus, a city bus, someplace miles away. I was going to be uh, serving at this serving project of some kind, a service project, and was going to be helping out. I had an address on a slip of paper, and I was just following the address. I jumped on the bus, headed south, and we were driving for miles. And as we were getting a little bit closer to what I thought would be the destination, I began to look at the addresses on the different buildings. It was getting a little bit harder to see because it was getting darker as we were going. And as we got fairly close, probably within a couple of miles of, of what I thought was the destination, I was surprised because we started driving through a, a, a beat-up-looking residential area. It was a, it was a place that, that just was not a very nice neighborhood. And it was surprising a little bit because it was so dead, so quiet. I know it was kind of dark out, but I expected there would be some people wandering around, and I was especially confused because I thought that the address that I had was for a, a business. You know, I thought I was going to a commercial district, not a residential place. And, but I looked, at the, I looked at my slip. I looked at the number as we were getting closer and closer. I thought, well, I think this is it. And I signaled for the bus driver to let me off the bus. You know, you pulled a little cord there. And, 
and the bus driver pulled over to the side of the road underneath one of the, the dim lights that was lighting up the street, and, and I got off the bus. The bus driver began to pull away, and then all of a sudden he abruptly stopped, and I heard the door open. And then I heard him saying something, and so I walked over to the door, and he said, listen, get back on the bus. He said, I don't, I don't know why you're here, what you're doing here, but you don't belong here at this time of night. It is not safe, so please just get back up on the bus. Now, I was, I was very embarrassed by that, you know, because everybody on the bus heard that, like, who's this kid that can't get it, you know, straight where he's going or whatever, and I, I sat down, and then I began to try to figure out, you know, what did I, what did I do wrong? And I don't know if I came up with it or whether the bus driver suggested it, but the answer was that I was supposed to be on the north side of the city, not the south side. A lot of addresses in the Chicago area have a north and south version of the same address, the same street. It's just that little N or that little S makes all the difference. And I finally, I stayed on the bus, it eventually turned around, I took it all the way back through town and the other side, miles to the other side, I got off the bus and found out that was exactly right. That that's where I should have been. But I was a little late, but I was alive. Now when I lived in downtown Chicago, I lived there for three and a half years, and when I lived there, they used to say that the most dangerous place in the city was this housing development called Cabrini Green. It was located just two blocks from the school. And they said, never wander into Cabrini Green. In fact, they told us, and I don't know if it was true, but they said even police officers don't drive back there, you know, unless they have to drag someone out. And the second most dangerous place, they said, was South Side. Second most dangerous place was the place where I was standing when the bus driver started to pull away, and I would have been left there. And every time I think about this, I, I just think about the fact that this guy really, he saved me. I mean, he didn't just save me from inconvenience or save me from what would have been a really distressing night. He, he might have saved my life. I would have had to have walked for miles through some of these beaten down neighborhoods just to get to the Zero Street, or the, the Sears Tower area, and then I would have had to have gone another eight blocks, another mile to get to the school. I may not have even made it. But this guy was willing to intervene. Now the question is why? Why did he intervene on my behalf? Because obviously he didn't have to. He could have concluded this is none of my business. He could have decided that if, if he says this to me, I'll get offended or something or get angry with him, like, what do you think, I'm dumb? He, he, might, have, he might have thought that, you know? Why did he intervene? Why did he care? He could have said, I'm in a hurry. I can't, you know, babysit this guy that got off at the wrong stop. And it's because in his heart he saw a need and was willing to get involved and to help out. My takeaway today is this, that when we see a need, we should care enough to intervene. You know, when we see a need, we, need, we should care enough, when we see that need, to intervene, to help out in the situation like this guy did. I've been so appreciative every time I've thought about this for what he did for me. 
Now, today we're continuing our series titled Face to Face. As was mentioned earlier, it's a series about the various encounters Jesus had with people, people like you and people like me. And today we're going to look at a story of someone that Jesus had a real heart for. Jesus, I love about Jesus that he, he really did care for the needs of the people around him, both the physical and the spiritual. He was always healing people, of course, when he ran into someone, and he just had, it says his heart was moved with compassion, you know, that's the way I think we're supposed to be. Instead of seeing someone in their need and just discounting it, it would say he, he felt compassion for that person. Most of the healings, though, he did, I think were pointing to the greater thing he did, and that is caring about the spiritual need of the people he was talking to. And that's where our focus is going to be here today, because I'm convinced that our spiritual need is of infinitely greater value than any physical needs we have, and that we should care about the spiritual needs of those in our world, that when we become aware of those in our world that don't know Jesus Christ, when we see a need, our heart should be to care enough to intervene. Now, the story that we're going to look at here today, I know is one that many of you, if you've read the Gospel of John, you're familiar with. It's a story of this, this woman, a Samaritan woman, who had an encounter with Jesus one evening. It was likely six o'clock in the evening when this woman showed up to get some water. Now, Jesus and his disciples were traveling to a region called Galilee, and on their way, they decided to go through Samaria, which was a different region. And they stopped at the city of Sychar because outside that city there was a well there and Jesus was very tired, he was thirsty, and so he sat at the well and he sent his disciples into the city to go get some food while he sat there and and while he was sitting there, this woman from the city came up to the well and that's where the story begins. I'd like to begin reading though. It's found in John chapter four. Let's begin reading in verse one. It says, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about six o'clock in the evening. Now, there's some interesting details about this. Uh, The the people, um, the disciples of Jesus were from Galilee, so in essence, what they were doing is they were, were traveling home. And we know from the story here that part of the reason that they were going on this trip was that word got out that Jesus' ministry was getting to be greater than that of John the Baptist. And this was a problem because the, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, did not like that at all. As it is, they hated the fact that John the Baptist was preaching and baptizing people in the Jordan River. And then all of a sudden, this Jesus comes along and And John the Baptist's ministry was kind of a big deal, but now the rumor came out that more people were following Jesus. His his influence is getting broader, and, and they didn't like it. And the real issue is this, that both John the Baptist and Jesus were operating outside of the traditional religious system. That's what the that's what the deal was. You know, 
you've got to go through us. You've got to go through the temple, the religious leaders or whatever, the Sanhedrin. You've got to be part of all that. And, and you get, then all of a sudden you've got this rogue preacher out here baptizing people. And then all of a sudden Jesus, and when he heard about it, he took off because I, I think he knew. He knew that they were coming after him. And so he begins his journey. Now, it's interesting that it says here, the text indicates that they had to travel through Samaria. That's a true statement, but it doesn't mean what you might think it does. Uh, just from a technical perspective, a walking perspective, you did not have to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. There were other ways you could go. So from that perspective, they did not have to go through Samaria. So what does it mean? Well, the words that are used here in the Greek language imply that they had to because they felt compelled to. God the Father was the one that was leading them to go this way, which is what God does sometimes in our hearts and lives, doesn't he? You just feel compelled, like I just have to do this. I don't know why, but I have to go here. I have to do this or that. This was about a divine appointment. Now, it was also about, I think, Jesus' protection, because there's no doubt about it that once Jesus got into the Samaritan area, none of the religious leaders would have followed him there. The Jewish people hated, especially the religious leaders, hated the Samaritans. My Bible study has a note here that says Samaritans are a people of mixed Gentile slash Jewish ancestry who lived between Galilee and Judea, and they were hated by the Jews. They were just hated because they were ones who had not kept, they didn't, they didn't marry into the Jewish faith. They, they married Gentiles. This was something that actually the Assyrians and Babylonians has kind of forced upon them. And so they were a mixed race and, and, and most people hated that. The Jewish people would look down on them because of that, but Jesus was going right into that place. And he arrives at this place called Sychar and there was a well there. It was a very famous well. It had been dug 2,000 years earlier by Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, and I talked about him a couple of weeks ago. And so Jesus is there by this well, sitting there. The disciples went shopping at the grocery or whatever they had back then, and he's sitting there, and then this woman shows up. Let's pick up the story in verse 7. We read, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The literal translation of that is that Jews do not use vessels with Samaritans. In other words, if a Samaritan offered you a drink from a vessel that they had drunk from, you, a, a Jewish, devout Jewish person would not drink from it. They wouldn't drink from a cup you provided. They wouldn't, they wouldn't eat from a plate you provided. They didn't use the, the utensils. Now, you can understand then how they viewed each other. I mean, the Jewish people despised these Samaritans and looked down on them and, and had a lot of prejudices against them. And so all of a sudden, Jesus says, would you give me a drink? And she's, she's, she's shocked by it. How is it you're asking me for a drink? And there was even more to it. Dr. Walvert of uh, Dallas Theological Seminary writes, the normal prejudices of the day prohibited public conversation between men and women. 
between Jews and Samaritans and especially between strangers, a Jewish rabbi would rather go thirsty than violate these proprieties. In asking for a drink, Jesus was showing his concern for her, his love for her. He was demonstrating that he did not view her as a Samaritan. That's not the lens through which he saw her. He did not view her as a woman. He viewed her as a person created in the image of God who needed a savior. That's how he viewed her. And I think this is how we should be viewing people as well. Scholars have indicated that the time in which this woman came to the well was an unusual time. Uh, no one else would have been there, and it's most likely because she was avoiding running into other people, because as we'll see in a minute, this was a woman who had kind of a history. She'd had five husbands. The guy that, that she was currently with was not her husband. And suddenly she shows up at the well, and Jesus begins to address her, and he was surprised by that. How is it you ask me for a drink? I don't get it. I'm a Samaritan woman. Jesus answered oddly in verse 10. We read, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you'd ask him and he would give you living water. If you knew who you were talking about or who, if you knew the person you were talking to, you know, you'd be asking me for water. Well, she didn't believe him. I say that because of the next verse, verse 11. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket. And the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? I can almost hear the tone in the voice. And it's a good question because Jesus had just asked her for water because he didn't have a bucket. He didn't have a way to get it. I need you to get the water for me and then... All of a sudden, he's saying, oh, by the way, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd be asking me. I'd be the one giving you the water. And she says, I don't know how you're going to do that. And I think she began to wonder just who are you? And so she asks the question in verse 12, the next verse, you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Now, she was expecting a no to that question. You know, you're not greater than Jacob. I think it was a rhetorical question. She was expecting the answer to be no. The answer was yes. She was talking to the Son of God and God the Son, the Savior of the world. He was infinitely greater than Jacob, the forefather. Now, the text indicates that Jesus was offering her what's called living water. And in biblical times, living water was a reference to flowing water. It was like a, a stream or a river type of flowing water. It, it was not stagnant. It's as opposed to stagnant. Living water was considered to be life-giving water. Living water was the kind of water that you could drink and it would satisfy your thirst. Living water would keep you alive, not the stagnant water. And what Jesus is offering her, that she doesn't get it yet, but he's saying, I have a water that I want to give you, a living, life-giving water that will do two things, which is what water in biblical times did these main two things, plus others, I suppose. It, it cleanses away dirt, and it satisfies the thirst, keeps you alive. 
And this living water that Jesus was offering was a a water that's able to wipe or clean away our sin, to clean us up on the inside. That's what Jesus was offering. And once and for all to quench our spiritual thirst. Now, Jesus offers this to you and me as well. Why don't you understand that? And, and people need physical water, of course, to live. You can't go very long without physical water. In a matter of days, you could die, depending on the circumstances. We need living water to live ourselves physically, but Jesus was offering something that you need to have if you're going to have eternal life. He wasn't offering physical life to her. He was offering eternal life to her. And he was now at a point in the conversation where he wanted to help her understand the difference between the two waters. So he contrasted what he was offering with the water in the well there. In the next verse, verse 13, we read, Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water, pointing to the well, will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water I will give him will never get thirsty again Ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. That's what he was offering. Now, she wanted this water when he said that, but in her mind, she still was thinking physical water. She, she was identical to Nicodemus in the previous chapter that we talked about last week. Nicodemus could not get it out of his mind that when Jesus said, you need to be born again, He couldn't get it out of his mind that Jesus was talking about a physical birth. And so he responded, well, how do you go back in your mother's womb? Probably being sarcastic there. What, 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 are you asking me to go back in the mother's womb or whatever? He, He was locked into a physical way of viewing things, and this woman was as well. Locked into a physical way of viewing this water, and so that's what she said in the next verse. She said, sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. And I was just give me this so I don't have to keep coming here. You know, it's a, it's a big deal. It's a big hassle. And again, she's coming at the off times. Doesn't want to keep running into people. She thought, oh, just give me that and I don't have to ever come here again. How nice would that be? And by the way, the water that God gives us through Christ does satisfy completely and it does result in eternal life. Now, at this point, the conversation takes an unusual twist, but it's an important twist. Continuing in verse 16. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You've correctly said I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands. And the man you now have, and that's in a sexual sense, The man you now have is not your husband, and the implication is it's somebody else's. The man you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, yet you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Why did Jesus bring up such a painful subject of her marital history? We don't know why she had five husbands. Some of them may have died. We don't, we don't know all the reasons why, but it was a painful subject. And Jesus could have just let it go, but something I talked about last week and I talk about often. People will not see their need for a Savior if they don't realize that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. 
Jesus was pointing out her spiritual need. You, you have a spiritual need. You know, there's a dryness within you, a spiritual problem that you have, and, and Jesus wanted to bring it to her attention. Now, Jesus did the same thing with Nicodemus in chapter 3. You know, Nicodemus, rock, Nicodemus walks up to Jesus and kind of compliments him. We know you're from God because, you know, no one could do what you do. And Jesus looked right at him and said, unless a person is born again, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Pointing right at Nicodemus, you're, you need to be born again. You have to see your spiritual need because this guy was a good guy. Didn't realize he had a, a deep spiritual need. And you won't turn to Jesus. You won't turn to a savior. You won't unless you see the depth of your, the fact that you need a savior, that you're broken, that you're a sinner. And that's why Jesus brought this subject up. She had to see it. Now this message of how we get right with God by putting our trust in Jesus who died in our place and for our sin and rose again from the dead, that's called the gospel. That's the good news. You know, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the good news. I've thought, though, for years that it's ironic that the good news starts with bad news. But it has to. Starting point is all of sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. Bad news is that we can't fix it. We can't clean ourselves up. We need a deliverer. We need a savior. And this is why I think that Jesus brought this up with her. And she suddenly says, well, I perceive you're a prophet, and then she changed the subject. I think it was a smoke screen. Well, let me ask you a question. Now I'm standing in the presence of a prophet, you know. You say you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. We say it's Mount Gerizim. You know, which, who's right here? I think it was a smoke screen. I've had people do this with me over the years. When the temperature got a little bit too hot concerning their own spiritual need, when their, when their heart was convicting them and they realized, I'm, I've got a problem here, they changed the subject. So people have said to me before, you know, we're, we're going down this track and then all of a sudden they say, yeah, but, yeah, but what about people who have never heard about Jesus? Will they go to heaven or, or how can a loving God, you know, let babies die? Stuff like that. And it's, it, you know, it's clearly to take the focus away from the need right here. And I think she was doing that, but Jesus was willing to accommodate her by answering the question. In biblical times, uh, one of the differences between the Jews and the Samaritans is that the Samaritans' Bible was different. The Samaritans only used the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was their entire Bible. The Jewish people of Jesus' day used the entire Old Testament even as we do. Now, if you were just in the Old Testament and only believed in the first five books of the Bible, you might conclude that Mount Gerizim is the place where, you, you know, where God is to be worshipped because Moses you know, talked about it. It figures prominently in those first five books. And so you, you, you would conclude that was the case. But if you had the rest of the Old Testament, you would know that God specifically directed that the temple was to be built in Jerusalem. And so Jesus answered her question in this way, beginning in verse 21. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming. By the way, woman here, is, it's a very respectful way to say it. Doesn't sound like it. But, you know, believe me, woman. But it's very respectful. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. 
But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, there are a few interesting things about what Jesus said here. First of all, in verse 24, He said, God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. Because God is spirit in His essence, the place where you worship is not essential. We can worship in our spirit. God, God knows our spirit. I love that because regardless of where you are in the world, in your heart, in your spirit, you can be praying to God. And he hears you. Spirit to spirit. And this is how God is. And, and he is omnipresent. And this is part of the reason God told the Israelites, Do never, never make an idol or an image of me and then bow down and worship it because you can't capture my essence through something that you could make with your hands. No, God is bigger than that, infinitely bigger and greater than that. But what really matters is, is the heart and the spirit you have when you're communicating with God the Father. A scholar by the name of D.A. Carson puts it this way, the true worshipers can not be identified by their attachment to a particular shrine, but by their worship of the Father in spirit and in truth. But let me note something else about that, the truth part. Because we live in a day and age where people say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe. They say things like all, all the paths lead to God. All the paths will eventually arrive there. It's like climbing up a mountain from different ends, but when you get to the top, God is there. That's what people are saying. And Jesus told this woman, no, salvation is not, it, it comes through the Jewish nation, through the Jewish scriptures. And of course, specifically, he was saying it comes through me. I'm, a, I'm born of, of David. Now, he didn't get into all of that at this point here. But all roads don't lead to God. And he was willing to broach the subject and say, you know, the problem is you worship what you don't know, you don't understand. And we worship what we do know because salvation comes from Jewish people. With my opening story, I had an address on a slip of paper. Not all addresses end in the same place. They don't. If it says north, it'll end up here. If it says south, it'll end up down here. It, 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 the address really, really matters. And Jesus was the fulfillment of all of this, but she had to understand it, it's done through the Jewish nation. And so she needed to understand her sinfulness, but she also had to realize that the path you need to take comes over through here. Dr. D.A. Blum explains it this way, salvation is from the Jews in the sense that it's available through Jesus who was born of the seed of Abraham. Now, I don't believe that she liked what he said here. And people don't always like it. You tell the truth, they don't always like it. I don't, th I don't think she liked it. Why do I say that? Well, in the next verse, John 4, 25, it says, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who's called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Uh, let's not talk about this anymore. I know that this Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain. He'll, he'll tell us which one is right here. And then Jesus said something that shook her world. I am he. Jesus told her, the one speaking to you. You know, during Jesus' three-year ministry, I, don't think, I can't think of any other place where he was so explicit, so clear. 
And again, it's another reason I love this story because this is such an unlikely candidate, you know, this woman from Samaria to, to hear the, just the clear statement, I am the Messiah. The Jewish leaders were trying to figure that out for three years. The disciples didn't even get it. I don't think until the end. And Jesus looks straight at her and says, I am the Messiah. And now she's faced with a decision. What will I do with this? Are you really the Messiah? Then I need to listen to you. Do you really have living water? And at this moment, we read the disciples return with their groceries. And they saw Jesus talking with this woman. They were baffled by it, but they didn't ask about it. And then the woman took off. But I love what she went and did. She went and told other people about it. Again, my takeaway, when we see a need, we should care enough to intervene. She said, I don't want to be the only one that knows about this thing and who this is. And so in verse 28, we read, then the woman left her water jar, went into town. By the way, notice the jar is still there. Jesus never did get his water. She went into town and told the men, come See a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. And then as a result of meeting Jesus, they believed. Verse 39, now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I ever did. You see, when we find Christ, we we now have a message to share with other people. And she had a heart to do that, and then skipping to verse 42. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is, and I love the description, this really is the Savior of the world. They got it. They got it, and they received this living water, and undoubtedly she did as well. I I love the way that ends that these people found Christ. They responded so differently than even the Jewish nation to this message. They were ready. Their hearts were prepared, and they said yes to Jesus. And I love the fact that God uses people to reach people. It's one of our applications here. We have the privilege of sharing a message that instills eternal life to those who believe. It's a risky thing to bring it up, But we all have people in our lives, this is what I want to say here, we all have people in our lives that we know don't know Christ yet. And when we see a need, we should care enough to intervene. We should look for opportunities to meet needs, physical needs and spiritual, whenever we see a need. Even with this opening comments about Roe versus Wade, there are going to be some needs that we can meet together as a church to be there, to meet various needs, physical and spiritual needs of people. But the greatest need of course is someone's eternal condition do they have life eternal life in them it's provided by Jesus and for some of us maybe the starting point is just to begin to pray for people that you know there's some people I pray for every single week by name every single week my prayers usually the same God I pray you open their eyes help them to see their condition draw them to yourself O Lord Give an opportunity for me or someone else to communicate this message of the good news about Christ because he is the way, Jesus said. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I think we have opportunities to invite people to be exposed to the gospel, whether here or somewhere else. And then I think we should always be ready to communicate the message if there's an opportunity. As I talked about last week, our simple message is the problem is sin. 
The solution is Jesus because of who he was and what he came to do, the Son of God and the Savior on the cross. And the response God's looking for is faith, to put our trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, which maybe some of you here today have never done that yourself. You've never come to this point where you realize I'm a sinner, I need deliverance, I can't fix it. And God sent his son for you and for me to pay the price in full on the cross. And he died, but the resurrection proves God accepted the payment. And so John wrote, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So most people do that through a simple prayer, God, I know I need a savior. I reach out to you, Lord Jesus. I want your death and resurrection to count for me. I want to receive you as my savior. Save me today. Give me the living water that you have promised. At this time, we're gonna close with a song. It's called The One You Love, but I think it's a song that really reflects probably what the heart of the Samaritan woman would have felt. Because I think she experienced, maybe for the first time in her life, just a deep love, an unconditional love from a God who reached out to her. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your love for us. Thank you, Lord, that your son came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that you care about not just our physical needs, but our spiritual needs. Thank you for your son who is the life giver who died in our place for our sins so that through faith in him we could have living water within us. This is a thirst that is quenched once and for all. There is salvation in no one else and we receive it today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.